You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts, BFA Design, and BFA Advertising programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. The BFA Design program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design. And the BFA Advertising Program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sva.edu and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. As you may have heard recently, these may be the final episodes of Revision Path. So in order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you have the means and you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support and of course, a huge thank you to everyone who has already donated. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Sam Viotti. Sam is based in Los Angeles, and she's a program designer, an adjunct professor, the executive director of a BIPOC country music label called the Rosedale Collective, and is the founder of the Viotti Design Studio. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Sam Viotti. I'm a program and experience designer, a creative at heart, and someone who really just like loves design, all things design. Just before we really kind of get into the conversation, I'd love for you to explain just off the top, like what does experience design and program design mean to you? And the reason I'm asking this is because oftentimes, and we'll, I think, get to this later in our conversation. Oftentimes when people think of design, they only think UI, UX, visual type of thing. What does experience design and program design mean to you? Yeah, I think a lot of the time when I say program design, people are like, you design computer programs? I'm like, no, not that kind of design. (laughs) Or they're like, interior design? And so program and experience design really, to me, is thinking about service and experiences for people. It really is people design in, in how I see it. So when we're designing the ways that people interact with one another, build relationships, operate in the world, professionally develop themselves... That's how I see program design. So Mm -hmm. really designing programs and experiences that people go through. 
And then experience design, I think is a little bit more broad than program design. So it includes program design, but also thinking about events and experiences and things that people kind of experience and go through. So events, conferences, those types of things, all, all thinking about not just what people are going, like experiencing, but seeing, smelling, what they're taking away. A lot of it is like learning. So mm-hmm. overall experience. So it's, it's kind of like an encompassing. It's funny you mentioned event because that's really sort of something that indulges or can indulge all of your senses. You know, what you see, the swag you pick up, any sort of right. beverages or drinks or, you know, food or anything like all of that kind of can fall into the realm of experience design. It sounds like. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Right. How have uh, things been going for you this year? It's been a busy year. I was traveling a lot. I took on just like really trying to spend a lot of time thinking about what is my life outside of my professional work. I live in Los Angeles, so I've spent a lot of time outdoors and started hiking this year. Yeah, I just really trying to absorb a lot of the outdoors now that I live in a warm climate. I grew up on the East Coast, and so it's really nice to spend more time outdoors, more times during the year. And I feel like it's definitely ignited my creativity in a way that it hasn't before. So I'm really excited about that. So yeah, spending lots of time outdoors, reading, trying to figure out, like this has been a exploratory year. And I think next year will be more of the like taking action on those exploratory ideas. Mm -hmm. But I've been thinking a lot about, I've always thought of myself as a designer and a creative and an artist, but recently have more thought about myself as being a curator. So really trying to dive into what that means. And also I should say, you know, congratulations are in order. I was, you know, doing my research and I saw you were recently selected to participate in something called the 2023 Key Change U.S. Talent Development Program. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Really excited about it. It kicked off at the beginning of October with a cohort of 25 really incredible human beings. It made my heart really warm to spend like three days with all of them. Started in October to end in March. So I'm really, really at the beginning of the program right now. And so far, we've only had a few interactions. So one in person and two virtual events together. And I already feel like I'm a part of a community, which is why I applied. I was really excited about being a part of a larger music and artist creative community in Los Angeles. But it's a Los Angeles, New York, and Nashville-based program. So we're also the first U.S. cohort, so I love being a part of a pilot program. We'll probably get into this later, but yeah, I've been a, a part of a lot of pilot first-time programs, which really is exciting to me to kind of lay the groundwork for what's to come. It's been really fun. We've spent time like working together. We went to Joshua Tree Music Festival together. Mm. I've never gone to a music festival for work before. It's like fun, so that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, being a professional at a music festival is interesting. It was really wonderful, and and a lot of so four of the participants in the program also performed. And it was the first time I got to see them perform. So just seeing the people who are your peers do their thing on stage was just like, I was like a proud mom <laughs> sitting in the audience. <laughs> nice. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a really beautiful community that they've built. And now you said it's the first US-based cohort. Is it uh, normally international, it sounds like? Yeah, it's a EU-funded program. So they mostly do projects in Europe. And so this is the first time they're doing a cohort in the United States, which is exciting. And now what will you be doing as part of the program? Is this affiliated with some of your other work? 
It is. So I applied as an innovator. So it's 12 innovators and 13 musicians or artists who come together to work just professionally developed. So really thinking about what is your career. I'm the co-founder of a small indie music accelerator and label focus on uplifting the voices of people of color in country folk and Americana music. We're expanding to other genres of music. So think like genres that you don't normally see people of color on the charts, we're, we're helping amplify those. And I applied thinking how incredible would it be to be a part of a cohort of people who are working towards similar things, trying to achieve equity in the music space, trying to change the music industry. I've been working in the music industry for a few years now. And it's very interesting. It is unlike any industry that I've ever worked in. I used to work in nonprofit. I moved to the private center, but like music feels very different. Um, and living in Los Angeles, you know, and on a, any Wednesday, you'll like go grab lunch and you're like, why is it crowded? Because <laughs> everyone's having a lunch work meeting, <laughs> uh, which is a different culture than I've ever experienced. Like, yeah, it's very different. So, yeah, so I applied thinking. How do I build my music community and work alongside other musicians and innovators to change how the music industry operates? A lot of the Rose, the labels called Rosedale Collective, we really often think about how do we change the way that artists are treated and supported and how do they have ownership, in particular, Black and Brown people having ownership over the work that they create. So how do we revision, no pun intended, actually, how do we revision a way forward for how artists create work and work with labels? And so we've designed a residency program that is a year long. We've done a few that are shorter. We have not launched our like long-term one-year-long program yet, but we're working on that. Uh, but the long-term vision is you support a cohort of artists throughout a year. You pay them a salary and they get to focus on making the art. And then instead of owning the IP or the masters to the work that the artists create, we revenue share throughout across all of the different categories that an artist to make money. So, you know, through merch and royalties on streaming and touring. So we split those and instead of just like outright owning the work and the artist gets to keep ownership. So we're really trying to rethink how the industry makes money with artists. And right now they're making money off of artists. So we're like, how do we make money with you instead of off of you. I mean, first off, that is a fascinating model. I mean, I think there's no shortage of horror stories about musicians getting, you know, shafted in some way by the music industry or taken advantage of or something. So I love that you sort of have this revenue share thing. And then also the fact that the focus is on, you know, a genre of music. I know you said you want to expand it, but you're focusing right now on country music, which again is probably not seen as very super diverse. Like I can probably count the number of black country artists. There's more now than when I was a kid, I'll say that <laughs> in terms of visibility. But yeah, that's such a an awesome... I mean, I feel like there's a great story behind even the fact that you co-own a record label. Like <laughs> That is amazing. It's a fun time. I actually, I met my co-founders at a conference in DC while I was working at the Obama Foundation. I was, we got tickets to a day of healing and restorative justice. And so I was like, I'd love to not go into the office today. I'd rather be at a conference. And so met these people who are working at the intersection of social impact and entertainment. And I was like, this is such a cool job. You just get to like use celebrity money to like change the world. Like that's awesome. <laughs> I was 25 then. So like <laughs> I was still like doe-eyed and excited 
little jaded now. So I was very excited about that. And so I kept in contact with the people who were working there and they reached out to me in 2020 about starting a record label and thinking about designing programs for people of color in the country music space. And so I was like that, I don't know a ton about country music. I know, you know, a little Shania Twain, but Mm -hmm. like, I do know that it feels pretty racist. And so that I can get behind challenging that. And so how do we really think about what music would look like and how it would be different if black people or people of color kind of were at the forefront. So country music was made by people of color. And so I, Charlie Pride is one of our people that we look up to. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, how do we just like reclaim a genre that really was made by black people? And now it's the face of country music is not a black person, not in the United States and not on the top charts. So how do we reclaim that? So we spent a lot of time thinking about narrative change and really redesigning the system of the music industry. I mean, I feel like there's a lot that has to go behind designing a label. I mean, of course, you think of general things like album art and logos and things of that nature, but the design and business of putting something like that together, that seems like such a huge undertaking. I'm going to be honest. I didn't know what I was doing. I still don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) And I think it actually has been really beneficial that I stepped into the music industry not knowing how the music industry works because I've just been doing what I think makes sense. And that doesn't necessarily align with what actually happens. And so I'm like, yeah, I think artists should like own their work. And people are like, well, it doesn't really work that way because we don't make a profit. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like we can figure out a way to make money while also letting people own things that they make. So let's just design that. I... Very luckily, my co-founder is an incredible, I don't think he would consider himself a designer, but like he designed our logo and I think it's genius. It's a circle that has like lines going through it and it's the middle of a guitar. Mm-hmm. It's a really amazing logo. I'm like very proud of the logo. So we put it on everything. I wear a sweatshirt, I have a hat, or stickers. And so thinking about how do we take symbols of country music and re redefine them? Because I think right now people think country music, I think, or before this, I used to think cowboy hat, cowboy shoes, cowboy boots. So like, what are the symbols of country music and what are the symbols of country music for people of color? The guitar is one of them. We work with some other organizations who really like to uplift black and brown artists. One of them is Black Opry. And so their their logo is also a guitar. So just thinking about the symbols and iconography for black country music has been really exciting because I think it's a different language. Like we're speaking a different language to a different audience. And so I spent a lot of my time in undergrad thinking about like symbols and iconography. And so it was exciting to bring that piece to the label and thinking about a label. It's like developing a brand. Like we developed a brand before we did anything. We came up with colors and a logo and a design and a deck. And so, so much of it was like, how do we communicate who we are and what we do before we've even done anything, which lots of conversations, lots of talking to people. Like before we did a single thing, we did a like listening and learning tour where we talked to like tens of musicians, like a hundred music execs and people in the music industry and in the nonprofit space trying to change things, social impact people. So just spend a lot of time talking to people to be like, what are people looking at? What do people feel? And how do we communicate what we're trying to communicate and who is our audience actually. So goes into a lot of the design work. I, when I went to grad school, I went to grad school at Emerson in a pilot program 
but it was called Civic Media Art and Practice. And so I, that's where I learned about design thinking. And so I brought design thinking into, ever since I've learned about it, I brought it into every single job. And so I think like when I don't know what to do, I like just rely on that process. I'm like, it'll be good. Like we'll just we'll figure <laughs> out how, it's like the scientific method. I'm like, I don't know how to get an answer, but if we just use this process, I can like get us to figuring out how we get an answer. We did a lot of that. And so that first stage of talking and listening to people is very similar to the like empathy stage in the design thinking process. I say that all the time to people about how design thinking is very much like the scientific method. So I'm glad that, that we see eye to eye on that. <laughs> yeah, I explained it like that. I'm like, it's the same thing. You yeah. know, people just, yeah, anthropologists looked at it. And I guess the design school looked at it and then rebrand. It's all branding. They rebranded it, but it's right. the same thing. I mean, I think what you're doing with, I mean, one, shining a light on country music and also promoting and uplifting artists, you know, BIPOC artists, et cetera, in country is great because, and I mean, I grew up as a musician. I grew up as a, a jazz musician mostly, but there was one thing about like, and this might be a bit of a stretch. So if it is, please let me know. But I feel like a lot of 80s and 90s R&B could do really well as contemporary country songs. Like, I feel like there's a thin line between like Tony Braxton and that being a country song. I'm thinking Love Should Have like, Brought You Home could totally absolutely. be a country song. I absolutely could be a country song. We used to like jokingly make a criteria checklist for like, what is a country song? One was like, <laughs> is it about love or heartbreak? Check. Check. Is it about, like, does it have a twang? Check. I think you're right. The only thing missing from the 80s R&B is the twang. Like if they mm-hmm. all had a twang, they yep. would absolutely be country songs. Yep. A lot of like Anita Baker songs could definitely also sound like country songs. She has like a slight twang, but I get what you mean, though. There is sort of a checklist of like, is it heartbreak? Is it lament in some capacity? Then it could totally be a country song. Now, we talked about Rosedale, but also you have another job where you work for Adobe. Can you talk a little bit about what you do there? Yeah, that is really exciting. I spend most of my time working at Adobe now. It's one of those companies that like when you're young and like in college and you think about design and education and like what's the coolest job you could have, like it is a job I have now. And I think that's incredible. Like college me would be very, very proud. So right now I lead all of Adobe's higher education professional development. So training programs for faculty and students in higher education in the United States. We're expanding to the United Kingdom and Australia. So I'm to think globally about what does it mean and what are the skills that a 21st century college graduate needs in order to operate in the world. Adobe is notorious for being extremely challenging, having a high learning, a very difficult learning curve and being quite inaccessible, you know, one financially and also just like the tools are complicated and there are a lot of them. Adobe has launched something called Adobe Express which is the kind of premier product that I work on and work with schools to use. So think of the rival Canva as Canva was the response to Adobe being really difficult. Adobe Express is a response to that. And so it's an incredible tool. I think the thing that's exciting about Adobe Express is it has a generative AI in it, which is really helpful now and interesting, brings a conversation about like, ethics and IP and copyright, which Adobe is like big on, especially because we've been working with artists and illustrators and graphic designers for ages. 
I spend a lot of my time helping faculty and schools and instructional designers think about what does it mean to be a digitally fluent individual? And so how do you redesign your curriculum so that students are getting the skills that they need to be successful beyond college? So instead of, you know, maybe writing that 10 page paper, what does it look like to help a student like create an assignment that is actually a video storytelling project or create a podcast instead of the paper? So what is the alternative to the typical research paper? Because in my personal job, I am not writing research paper long things anymore. I am doing research and then applying it to a project. Mm -hmm. And so how do we do a little bit more project-based learning at the higher ed level? I think a lot of K-12 and high schools have taken this on, which is incredible. But I I think the project-based learning often happens either in like really vocational or like technical student projects. So like if you're in a graphic design class or like create this poster and like, or create a project for a client, like those things happen. But in the kind of social sciences and English classes, like that's not really happening. It's still pretty static. And it's like, write a paper to respond to this. And I'm like, the the world that we live in now doesn't really do that. So how do we change how we're thinking about it? And how do we cultivate the skills that people need? Creating presentations, marketing on social media, creating posters, creating graphics, like everyone, video and short form storytelling, short form video is the primary way that people communicate now. Like cannot mm-hmm. scroll on any social media without seeing video. How do we cultivate those skills to make sure that like students are set up for success? So I spent a lot of my time doing that, which is really cool because I was really interested. I started my career in education. And then I also just like have always had this passion for being creative and and working with creatives and just thinking about arts and, and culture. And so I feel like I get to bring those worlds together in my role at Adobe now. That is fascinating. <laughs> I mean, you're designing education or you're designing the way that, that people are learning about, you know, these new tools and these new methods and things. I mean, I'm curious, like, does that work and the work you do with Rosedale Collectors, does that bleed into each other in any way? Like, it feels like that could be a lot to possibly try to balance. It is. It's like, you know, corporate world and also working at a small indie, but I sit in between the education team and the marketing team. And so I've learned so much about corporate marketing through working at Adobe, which as an indie label and accelerator, we have the finances to play small, but I'm like, how do we play big? Because that's how the music industry works. There's so much, like everyone's a musician. Everyone can be, right? Mm-hmm. And so how do you get the people that you want to bubble to the top? And it it's marketing. I was talking about those interviews earlier and we talked to so many artists and I'd say like, what do you need help with? Like, what's your biggest struggle right now? It is not songwriting. It is not making the music. It is not finding a producer. It isn't even touring. It is marketing. They're yeah. like, how do I get someone to hear my music? And mm-hmm. like it's marketing and distribution. And so I've learned a lot about marketing and distribution in this corporate role and seeing how that plays out and being able to say, okay, if that's true here, how do we apply it to like, how do we use some of these strategies for our artists and like teach them how to do it for themselves? And so I see my role in both of them as I'm professionally developing people. They're just different, but coincidentally, the artists that I work with are about the same age as the students who faculty are working with, I have a similar audience. Like, how do I prepare these 
18 to 25 year olds with 21st century skills to be successful in the world to either market themselves, market the things that they're working on, and like really tell stories. I mean, I think what you're doing is is just such extremely important work because I think what we've definitely seen over the past few years is that our systems are changing. I mean, definitely with the advent of, you know, AI and things, we're seeing how that's been affecting certain industries. But even like you said, with marketing and getting content out there, it's even weird to call it old school, but the old school ways which we knew about how to market things and how to learn things are changing. And a lot of that is due to technology. So I think you being at the forefront of that, particularly with uh, with sitting kind of between like marketing and education teams is that sounds like a dream. I mean, I'm speaking for myself, but like that sounds like a dream job to have. Yeah. I Again, like I think college undergrad me would be like, what job? If someone asked me what job I wanted, it would be this one. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. The other thing that I just so excited about is generative AI. I know that it's a hot topic, but working at Adobe and seeing just like how these tools have allowed people to make things that they wouldn't have created before saying like, I also am an illustrator, not a great one, but it's my hobby. It has enabled me to create things that I wouldn't have been able to create before. And and not in like a plagiarism way, but I'm like removing the background from something used to take ages in Photoshop. Mm-hmm. Now in Adobe Express, it's a button. Like I'm just like, it has saved me time. Like <laughs> Technology is catching up with how quickly and how fast the world is paced, right? Like things happen and then it is online in seconds. I'm like, the tools have, are starting to catch up to that. So I've been really excited about how do we leverage those tools to ignite creativity? Because I'm someone who procrastinates and I also get really stuck. I think generative AI has helped me get unstuck as like a brainstorming place. I'm like, you know, let me just like pop it in and see what I can start with. Mm-hmm. Whereas before I kind of just like sit and wait and then never do it. <laughs> just recently, we had Andre Foster on the show, and he has a motion graphics company in Detroit called First Fight. And he talks about how he uses generative AI kind of in the same way that you mentioned it. He uses it like inspiration. It's like a, uh, I think he likened it to a Pinterest board or a mood board where it's a good place to sort of just take the idea from your head and start to instantly visualize it to see where you could possibly go next with it. Love that. I totally agree with that. Now, you talked about growing up on the East Coast, so I would like to kind of shift the conversation towards that and learn more about just sort of how you got to where you you are now. So you grew up on the East Coast. Were you kind of always exposed to a lot of art and creativity and such growing up? Yeah, I grew up in New York City. So every field trip was to a museum when I was in school. I also had parents who were really excited about the arts. My mother was a dancer, just really excited about performance arts Same with my grandmother. And then my dad and my dad's mother. So my dad's mother was a teacher. I was excited about reading as a kid. I spent so much time at the library. I used to like pick out books and very often I would like pick books based on their covers as like in contrary to like what you're told. Um, I was like, (laughs) if it's cool, if it looks cool on the outside, I'm sure it's cool on the inside. And so I was just like really excited about that. I used to draw a lot, like the Christmas gifts that I used to get as a kid was like, I don't know if you remember those like really big 
I hope they still make them. I haven't seen them in a while, but like it's like pastel crayons, paint. Oh yeah, like, those big like, like one hundred and thirty yes. piece art kits yes. or whatever. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And like they'd have a bunch of pencils, and I never used to use like they had like four types of pencils, and I was like, I don't know what anyone's doing with this. I like the color, so I used to get those. <laughs> like every year, I'd ask for a new one. I didn't always need a new one, but yeah, I asked for. I used to run the crayons down like to the bone. And so I used to play with those all the time. And so I'd like draw pictures of our family, draw pictures of the sky, draw pictures of the books that I'd read. Like spent a lot of time drawing and creating. I'd like do cutouts. I used to play with paper dolls all the time. Just like always thinking about what I can now see in retrospect is design. And my dad, who just like was so proud of me, used to in our basement created kind of less like a little curatorial gallery of like my work on a string through the basement. So anytime I came down or people came down, it like felt like a gallery show. And so I always loved museums and art. Yeah, there's my art was all over the house. Like it was on the fridge, it was on the walls, it was upstairs. And so I was really encouraged to like express my creativity. My dad was a computer nerd. And so he tried to teach me computer programming when I was younger. I think it was called Logo or Logo. Oh anyway, yeah, with I the turtle. Yes, with the church. So my dad was tr- yes. so trying to teach me that. I hated it. I was like, this is so boring. I can't stand this. He's like, but you can create art with it. And I was like, I just, I'm not interested. You know, I really regret it. I wish I became a computer scientist. <laughs> but I yeah, just constantly encourage, I used to use the paint app on Microsoft and like on Windows, like, you know, all kids. But I was really into just like creating. And I was really encouraged to create, which... I'm so grateful for now. I think my parents really let me explore, at least when I was a child. This changes a bit when I get older. But like while I was a child (laughs) in my adolescence, Mm -hmm. I was very much encouraged to paint, create, make things, get messy, like do whatever and explore my creativity, whether it was like making my own clothes, designing clothes, designing paper, making notebooks, writing stories, like anything. And I think that's, I brought a lot of that into how I kind of exist now and explore my creativity now. Did that shift happen in high school? Yeah, it did. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's funny that you know that. I was not encouraged to explore art when I was in high school. I remember, like, I liked our art class and I, I did quite well. My dad was excited. So my mom passed away when I was six. So a little hard. My dad had to, like, take on being a single parent and then remarried. My parents were divorced at the time, so it wasn't, like, that stark of a, like, they're dating someone else difference, but yeah. I was close to the woman who is now my stepmother, who I'm very close with and who helped raise me. She's a nurse and so a registered nurse. And so just like a very practical human in a way that like maybe my dad and I were not. And so she's like, you need a practical job. Need you to get a practical skill. Like, mm. what are we doing? Which I think she's brought the logic to my creativity, which is wonderful. But once I got to high school, I was not discouraged from taking art classes, but it was like, well, then what are you going to do? I used to like use my room as a curatorial space. Like I'd buy, buy as many magazines as I could. And then I'd like, my walls were completely covered with images. Mm. And I just like would always do that. I'd look at font type and like ads. I was like, how do I like create this? And I wanted to go into advertising and marketing and communications. But my parents were just like, I just, maybe, like, I don't know. Yeah. Like my dad was like, please go into science. I was like, you're really not good at physics. And my mom was like, please do something practical. And so I was kind of like torn and all I really wanted to do was change the world. Then I just like became privy. I went to a predominantly, interestingly, a predominantly Asian school in New York City. So 
50% of the population was Asian, maybe 20 was white, and then the rest was like black and Latino. Okay. And Southeast Asia. Well, again, yeah, maybe Southeast Asian. But so, yeah, just like it was a very interesting mix, but just was starting to become more privy to racism. I think growing up in New York City, I'd always thought in high school, thought I go to such a diverse school, I've gone to diverse schools, like everything's fine. And then realizing like the world just doesn't operate in the ways like that it should, like extreme poverty exists. Like I want to work in that. Like, how do I do that? And my parents were not excited that that's, they were proud of me, but they were not excited about that career path. And I was like, you want to go into nonprofit, you're not going to make any money. Um, (laughs) And so I ignored them. And went to college. So I went to college at uh, Wheaton College in Massachusetts, small liberal arts college, about 1,600 students. So very small. Campus was like, you could run around it. I couldn't even really get my laps off when I go for a run because it was only a mile like, and barely. Oh, wow. So like, it's a very small campus. And so I, I was like, I'm just going to major in English. As a li- and I wanted to go into marketing communications, but small liberal arts college only had English as a major. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, seems close enough. I major in English. I'm my parents are like, sounds fine. It seems like a scale great. And I start applying to internships and I'm not getting anything. Like absolutely nothing. Oh. Um, I'm like, I can write things. This seems practical. What's going on? But I was applying to things that were a little bit more creative, a little bit more ad comms marketing. And I think they were like looking for someone who is in that. My junior year, there's a new major called film and new media studies. And so I took it sat within the English department. And so it was, I could take film classes as an English major. Mm. And so I did. And the first class I took was race and racism in us cinema blew my mind, was excited. I was like, this is all I want to do forever. I need to change my major right now. I know I'm getting ready to graduate when I have to. And I also need to study abroad. So like, how do I make it happen? My like professor and advisor at the time, incredible was here's what we're going to do. You're going to switch your major. (laughs) You're just going (laughs) to change it. And you're going to go to Australia because that's where they have a, pro- a mutual program and you'll study film and graphic design there. You'll make up your like freshman credit for the major and then you'll come back and like you'll finish the credits and you'll graduate on time. I was like, great. Sounds lovely. I changed my major to new media, film and new media studies on my resume before even changing it formally on paper. And all of a sudden I'm getting responses back on internships. People are <laughs> so happy to talk to you. I was like, this is ridiculous. And that to me is the like, epitome of like that's the power of branding and marketing Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah pursued that i was excited about film and new media studies i didn't love actually being behind the camera like i had to take i was like a senior in freshman classes in like film production 101 learning about aperture i was like i don't want to do this this is not (laughs) fun for me i was like can i just tell someone what to do like isn't that a thing and someone's like oh you want to be a director (laughs) it's like yeah (laughs) it's like exactly so yeah, I moved a little bit away from like technical film and really loved the theory and things like that. And so I was able to explore ideas of so- like concepts of social justice and equity and race and representation through that studies and then took that into my hope. I was hoping to take it into my professional career, which I did, which quite different as my first job, which was I was helping first generation college students get into college when I first graduated, which I there's more similarities than I thought. I was really excited about that role. And I wrote a lot. I helped every single student tell their story, writing college essays. I reviewed lots of college essays, lots of supplemental essays, 
they ended up being more connected than I thought they would be. But yeah, I did not go into a film and new media studies advertising like role right after college, like I wanted to. But I think the college, the supporting students to get into college was really impactful one that led me to the career that I have now in education. I mean, I feel like, and I've said this on the show also before, like college is really that time for you to experiment and explore exactly what it is that you want to do. And I think it's specifically for the reasons that it sounds like your parents didn't want you to go into some specific field. I mean, K through 12 were were kind of booked or were sort of subconsciously shaped and molded into a particular trajectory that we may not even want, we may not even want to do. Like, I know for me, when I was growing up, I really wanted to write and I wanted to major in English. And my mom was like, no, you stay on that computer. You're going to do something with that computer. Like you're going to major in something with that. And I liked web design, but like, I also went to a small liberal arts college and this was in the, oh my God, I'm dating myself. This was in the nineties and they didn't have web design. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be a computer science major. And that was not web design back then. I mean, we're talking 1999, 2000. That was not web design. That just, that curriculum did not exist. You learned it on your own and you just kind of hoped to make a way for it. Like it wasn't something you went to school for. But I say all of that to say college is really that time where you're able to branch out and see where your interests take you. I mean, there's very few places outside of that particular type of institution where you're allowed to explore and play and do different things. And it won't have like a detriment on your status as a human in this capitalist world. You know what I mean? Totally. And I wish like I knew it. I guess I felt it then that that's what it was for. My parents were like the tuition money, four years. So explore all you want <laughs> within that amount of time. <laughs> so I felt like there was, you know, a ticking time bomb. And I also was like, I was one of those kids who was like, I literally cannot go back home after college. Like I can't with my parents. Yeah. I am an only child who like is just constantly being helicoptered. Like I need to live elsewhere for mm-hmm. all of us, like for everybody. <laughs> and so I, was, I really need a job. I need a job that pays me enough to to leave. And so, I, yeah, I moved to Boston. As, like, so my school's in Massachusetts. I ended up moving to Boston right after college and lived there for quite a bit. But yeah, I, college was an interesting time. And I loved school. I was one of those kids who loved school. When I was younger, I looked forward to going to school. I think part of it was being an only child because like, I make all these designs and stuff. And like the only person looking at them was my dad. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like, or friends who came over vacation. So I was so excited to go to school and get like affirmation from like teachers. <laughs> I 100% know what that's like. I mean, I wasn't the only child. I had an older brother. But yeah, like to get that sort of validation that the work that you're doing means something. It's actually making an impression on other people. I was very much, oh yeah, especially in college, I was very much like a school kid. Like I did not want to go back to Alabama. I'm like, we have to make it out. I don't know what that looks like, but we got to get out. We can't go, can't go backwards. Now in 2017, you started working at the Obama Foundation, and you sort of touched on, you know, some of your early career things that you did right after Wheaton. How was your time at the Obama Foundation? Like, how did you sort of start there? That was, like, I remember getting my, like, offer verbally, and I just was, like, stunned. I was like, I cannot believe I'm about to work for the person who was the first Black president of the United States. Like, (laughs) it meant so much to me. I think So it was after he was in the presidency. So he made a foundation really focused on organizing community, community work for young people. 
I worked on the education team at the Obama Foundation, which again, mixing education with what I was excited and like changing the world. I was like, my goodness, dream job. And it's so funny, like at every stage that I've had a job, it's been like a dream job only. And, you know, now I'm in a job that I also think is my dream job. And I'm like, what will I think years later when, when I have another job? Anyway, it was incredible. Like I have made the closest friends I've like ever made. It was an interesting time. I think a lot of, I never worked on a campaign before, but I imagine some of the campaign culture has like seeped into our workplace. And so all of us were very close. We spent a lot of time together trying to work towards the goal of empowering 18 to 25 year olds to change their worlds and their communities. I loved it. It was incredible. I was hired as an experienced designer. So thinking about our programs. So the education team had two, one program at the time. I was there for a few years. And so we developed more programs, but the original program was like, a one-day experience for 150 18 to 25-year-olds in Boston, Chicago, and Phoenix, Arizona. And so we went to each city and we'd work with community organizations. We'd work with designers and organizers to really like fire up these 18 to 25-year-olds, get them passionate about the thing that they were excited about. So we're like, what are you passionate about? What do you care about? And how can we drive you to a plan of action to organize towards that. And so I saw my role as one, just understanding our audience. So I spent so much time talking to the 18 to 25 year olds that we worked with. I set up design workshops. I would work with them. So I I used a lot of my design thinking stuff from grad school that I learned and would go through that with them. I taught a lot of our design thinking sessions. So I'd go from city to city just going through project-based learning and talking about how do we like, well, if this is what you care about, how do we develop a plan for that? How do you understand them? Who is your audience? You know, a lot of 18 to 25 year olds are like, I want to end poverty. And I'm like, yep. Where do we start? Like poverty, what poverty, where? Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so that was really exciting for me. And I was so, it was really impactful. Like I can still remember the day that, we brought President Obama to meet all of the students who had been in the program, not students, community members who had been in the program. And it was just like the most joyful I've ever seen people. Like people are like crying. They're like falling down. They're like, he's shaking. He decides to shake every single one (sighs) of their hands. He was supposed to be going to a meeting with donors and we were scheduling him to just take a photo. He was supposed to come and take a photo with the group. We're very excited about that, that he was going to be able to do that. But he was like supposed to be rushing to a donor meeting. He was already late. He was late to come meet us for the photo. We thought he finds out that he's late to the donor meeting and is like, oh, well, and just stands there and shakes 350 (laughs) hands. (laughs) And so I was like, this is, I just, I'm so happy I got to witness that. And so that was the power of his brand. I was so lucky to be able to like, I felt like I could walk into any room and just like be listened to because of who we were representing mm-hmm. and the power that that had for people in the in many communities across the United States. It just like symbolized change. It symbolized hope. And I'd never been a part of a brand like that. I'd worked in many nonprofits, but obviously nothing like that. And so that experience was, yeah, I loved working there. I met so many incredible people, so many smart people who have worked and lived all over, had different experiences. 
but everyone came together for this like one central mission, which was to empower people to change the world. It was absolutely incredible. I think about that experience very, very often. I mean, if there's any brand that could get you probably in the foot of any company, it would be Obama. I mean, that's God, that has to have been such an amazing experience to be able to do that kind of work. I think you you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier when you said like making <laughs> I wrote it down. You said something about using celebrity money to change the world. Like <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. It was so great. And the other thing that I was able to do was because I was our experience designer and helping to design our program, I got to choose who we put on stage. So, or who we got to put on a platform. And I was so excited about that. I was like, this is it. I get to choose the people of color that I want to be on stage or the people who I think are making a difference. They, I can get to curate that experience. So I was so lucky. I worked with Antoinette Carroll and Chris Rudd, who have also been on this show, who were a part of that like amazing program that we ran mm-hmm. um, over the course of a few years. So just really excited to be able to give opportunities to people who really deserve one recognition, the amplification, and just like the connection with the community that like we really thought they were already doing, but wanted to uplift them. So absolutely incredible. Got to work with a ton of designers and creators because I was working in that space. And you send an email with Obama.org attached to it and people responded, which was exciting. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a saying that you can't be what you don't see. And I can only imagine because you had that level of access that it probably opened up for you a lot of possibilities of what you could do personally out in the world. I know while you were at the Obama Foundation, you started your own design studio, Viati Studio. Did that sort of come from that time of seeing what was possible because of the Obama Foundation? It did. I didn't know how much money existed in the world until I worked there. (laughs) I just, I mean, like talking to donors and who you have access to and who responds and what people are willing to do and how many people of color I'd seen and worked with who started their own companies. So many of the designers that we worked with ran their own design firms. And I was like, oh, this is, I can see how it's possible. I had never thought of it before. I knew I wanted to like start something when I was younger, but I didn't know what. And so I started doing like design consulting. So designing programs and giving design thinking advice and doing design sprints and workshops for other companies and nonprofits at the time. But yeah, I was so inspired by all the work that I was doing with other people. I was like, well, if you're doing it, I think I might be able to do this, which is really exciting. And I had help. I mean, the connections that I made at the Obama Foundation and the people that, and the designers that I spoke to, like, I don't think people were trying to gatekeep at all, which I thought was really beautiful. People Mm -hmm. were like, I mean, I work with them. You should totally work with them. Let me just like make an intro, which I had not experienced before. I think a lot of nonprofits that I worked with before that were gatekeeping. And I, I understand why it was like, well, if I tell this company or this grant about you, like, well, we get the money next year. Right. So it was a lot of like, I want to keep things to myself, but mm-hmm. it was not like that at all. I was like, this is amazing. So everyone wanted to help each other. And so I was able to make connections and get clients pretty quickly. And a lot of them came from like my, all of, I think all of my first clients are Obama foundation related. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now you were there for a number of years and then afterwards you, you left and you went to work for a biotech startup curative. 
When you look back at that time, like, what do you remember? Because I can imagine it's probably a lot different from, you know, nonprofit work, especially the Obama Foundation. So it was 2020. So the pandemic had hit. And Mm -hmm. I used to do programs in person at the Obama Foundation. 2020 happened. We're doing programs virtually. I just was like, I don't know that our programs virtually are doing the same thing that they were when they were in person. Mm. And so like, the world is in a really scary space. I want to be on the ground. And so I got recruited by Curative to lead all of their kind of expansion with communities. So the job actually, when I had that interview with Curative, the woman who hired me actually was in political organizing before that. And she was like, it's actually, she's like, you tell me about your job at the Long Foundation, but she's like, I think it's really similar. I know it's biotech. Hear me out, but I think what you're doing is like partnering and working with communities. We're changing healthcare, and you're really just, it's the same thing, only it's healthcare and not community organizing. And I was like, I think you're right. So I worked, I partnered with community organizations to pop up COVID testing at the time and then vaccinations for communities of color in particular where they didn't have testing and vaccinations. And so I thought that I was like, this feels like, a need, right? Like people are dying. I want to be of service. And so it was a crazy time. Like I don't understand how I did not get COVID then. This is like before people were wearing masks. Like Mm. I was out helping like set up test sites without a mask. And then I was wearing a mask and like I was traveling, like everyone's at home and I am like on a plane to New Orleans to set up a test site alone on the plane because obviously no one's flying. And I was like flying all across the country, trying to make sure that people were getting tested. I thankfully in the year and a half that I worked there, never got COVID. I got COVID last year at a conference. So (laughs) um, yeah, literally just like I was completely fine, but it was a really impactful experience. I got to use my like design thinking skills. We did lots of, I did lots of like marketing and trying to understand our audience. I worked with a bunch of different types of of clients and customers. Like I worked with city governments. I worked with fire stations. I worked with federal government. Like I worked with everyone, private sector. I worked with schools. So many schools wanted to go back to in person, but didn't have a testing plan. So I was like working with each individual school to workshop, like what will work best for you. And so I used a lot of what I felt like was my design thinking hat to design programs and processes that made the most sense so that people could return, not return to life, but like be able to live lives that felt safe enough to live and still benefit. I so mean, yeah, it was a really crazy time. <laughs> I mean, it feels like it's a lot of that sort of practical application or continuation. Like you're, you know, like the, the person that hired you said, you're taking that same energy and that same sort of skill of putting programs together, but you're doing it on really kind of a more tactical level in that way, especially during a time when the pandemic affected, I feel like all of us in different ways. But the one thing we all had to do was sort of figure out how to kind of move through it, navigate through it, move forward, especially with information changing a lot. Like you said, pre-masks is is a time that, <laughs> that now is a bit hard to think of because they were so ubiquitous. Yeah. And I mean, people are, you know, kind of still wearing masks now because we're kind of still in the pandemic, but in a lot of ways, because of work that, you know, people like you have done, we've found ways to kind of manage our lives through it, which who knows how long that would have taken if that didn't exist or if, if there weren't people like you that were able to make that happen. 
Yeah, incredible. I was able to hire an incredible team, like just could not have done it with a bunch of other people. And like, it was a wild, it was a wild time. And I learned a lot about healthcare. I used to hate the healthcare system. I still do. But I now understand why there are so many like entities designing for healthcare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now that I've worked in it, I'm like, it makes, it makes sense. It needs redesigning. It definitely, it was my first for like private sector job, which I was trying to pivot. Like the Obama Foundation was great, but I was kind of tired of being a nonprofit. I was tired of like not having enough money and working really hard all the time and like working to the mission, but like not getting paid enough. I was like, I think there's a way for me to like get paid enough and work towards a, a real goal. Yeah. So yeah, being in the for-profit during COVID was very interesting because in like, healthcare, we're trying to save the world, but we're also making money. So a conversation for another day about the healthcare system. But yeah, <laughs> it, it helped me understand a little bit more about the way the world works. And now you're doing Rosedale, you're doing Adobe, you still have your studio, and you also teach. You are an, an adjunct lecturer at Loyola's Quinlan School of Business. How did that come about? <laughs> it's an incredible program. So I um, again, so I met two people. One was someone who was one of the first community members in the Obama Foundation program that we ran, just stayed really close to her. She was one of those people that I called her our super user. She just like would do exactly what I would imagine someone would do in our program. She's ideal. I could predict her behavior. It was amazing. <laughs> and so uh, we stayed in contact. She started working at the Baumhart Scholars Program at the Clinton School of Business and asked me if I wanted to guest lecture her class, like come and just talk. So I did. And then there's another person who was in the program. I did Starting Block, the Starting Block Fellowship a few years ago, probably 2018, so more than a few now. But someone else who was a designer also taught another course and was like, hey, could you come to my class too? And so I, I did. He was getting ready to leave the following year because he got a very cool job at Capital One doing design. And so he left and they were like, well, we don't have anyone to teach class. Do you want to teach it? I said, I'd love to teach this class. So it's a project management and social innovation class. And it's taken a bunch of different iterations. This will be the third year that I'm teaching it. It actually starts next week. Time for me to start designing the deck. But <laughs> the incredible thing about the program in particular, so the Baumhart Scholars Program is within the School of Business, but it is for a select group of students who really care about social impact. And so a lot of their courses are focused on it. Obviously, you get an MBA, but a lot of courses that you have to take in addition to the MBA requirements are social impact focused. So the project management course, I, I've done lots of project management, so I hadn't thought about it as like, how do I teach it? I was like, it's just something that I I do. I'd gone to trainings for it throughout my career, but had not thought about how do I teach this? And then how do I teach the social impact piece? And so I, I actually really excited about how this class was taught. I have kind of mapped the class into different sections and each section is a different aspect of the design thinking process. So it starts with empathy and goes to reflection. I also take the design equity framework. If people aren't familiar, it's the kind of typical design thinking process, empathy, empathize, define, ideate, prototype, iterate, and do it all over again. But I've added kind of equity pauses, which is a term that I learned from another designer, 
and reflection at every stage. So I talk about doing all of those things within project management, because I think that's really what project management is. It is like working with people, it's understanding people, it's trying things and then doing them again and then trying it and doing it again. And so I'm really excited about it. It's a project-based class. Every single person in the course, it's usually a small class, but every single person, I encourage them to choose a project that they are working on at work or they're all adult professionals who have jobs and do this MBA mostly on the side. And so they choose a project from work. And then we, I'm like, I want you to change something at work, like, or something that's, or a project that you've always thought about doing, but you have never actually had the time to do. Like, let's use this class time because you have to take this class. Let's do it now. So people have come up with incredible things. Someone came up with like a youth program last year, which I was really excited about. Someone revamped their entire like board of directors processes, which I was impressed with. She's on the board of a nonprofit and was like, we just don't fundraise, right? How do we rethink the fundraising strategy? And how do I lead my team through a process? A lot of the work is quite meta where they're redesigning experiences that will be redesigned. So they're coming up with a project plan. So I I bring a lot of the design thinking aspect to the course in addition to trying to give people practical skills on like, how do you manage a project? Like what tools are we using? Are you using Trello? Are you using Monday? Are you using Asana? How are you assigning roles to people? Are you thinking about equity when you're deciding deciding roles for people? How do people, how do power dynamics come into play? So really intertwining all of those things. And so I've learned so much from all of the students because they all work at different places. So some people are working in consulting, some are working in education, some are working in at healthcare nonprofits. And so they all are working together. They, I have a lot of it is group work, but the end project is individual. So I hope that they're learning from each other about what each other is working on and, and challenged with. So I love teaching that class. It's also not that long. It takes a few months. And so it's what I look forward to every end of the year. It's a nice closeout to the year. I mean, it really feels like a perfect way for you to take all of these skills and things that you've learned throughout your career and pass that on to the next generation of, I want to say of innovators. You mentioned at the top of the episode that you had applied for this, uh, this development program as an innovator. And the more that you talk about your career and the experiences you've went through, I'm like, I can see it plain as day. Like you're really out here changing minds and hearts. It's, it's so awesome. It's nice to hear. I hadn't thought about, yeah, I guess when you like talk to someone and hear it back, it definitely feels different. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> now, I think what's probably most interesting about you and your career and what you do is that you take design and design is, is such a, a broad category. I think even when you tell someone you're a designer, if you tell five different people, you may get five different definitions of what that even is. I mean, for you, what does design mean? Like what's your personal philosophy when it comes to that? I believe everyone's a designer. I also believe it's people who like want to take on that role. Like if you are, you want to be a designer, you can be. I think the most important thing about being a designer is understanding who you're designing for, you know, graphic designer and I, someone who is a programmer experience designer will have what we have in common is who are we designing for? The graphic designers like, I'm making a poster or maybe they're making a poster and they're like, okay, well, who's the poster for? I'm like, I'm designing a program. Well, who's the program for? So really getting to the, the meat of how do I understand people? And for program design, I think it's beautiful because I 
it's everything or experience design is everything. It's what I said earlier was it's what things smell like, what you're touching, what you're seeing, who you interact with, when you interact with them, when we show you something, like all of those things make an impression. So I think about design as it is design is everything. Yeah. I look at, and now that I've been in so many different sectors and I know that design means so many different things, I see design in everything. Like I, I can't open a door without being like someone made this and thought about how humans will open this door mm-hmm. wild. So yeah, designs and everything. I think it, it's a branding, as I always say, it's a branding marketing. It sounds like you're really interweaving with design, at least with the way that you're approaching design. Everything works together. All these processes work together. Nothing is in a, in a vacuum. And I think that's really a holistic way to look at design, because for years, you know, people always say designers are problem solvers, but the problems they end up solving tend to be UX problems or browser problems or things like that. When there are so many other things out there in the world, you mentioned healthcare, government is another one, government services. There are so many huge systems that we encounter every day that could use that design eye and that design thinking. And so I hope that people, you know, listen to this conversation. And start to think of design in a bigger way, like think outside of just what you see on a monitor or on a phone, like think of design in a broader sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think you're spot on. What's inspiring you these days? Thank you for asking that. Color. Color has been inspiring me. I started reading, I went to the library and I started reading color. Sorry, I have the book right here. Colors for Designers. 95 things you need to know when choosing and using colors for layouts and illustrations. Mm -hmm. And I, I've been having like a lull in inspiration and I never really learned about color theory formally. And so I've just been so excited about color. I've been going on hikes recently. And so I, I've been obsessed with the sky. (laughs) I like go on runs and there's a beautiful sunset on Monday and I counted 11 colors in the sky. I was just like, wow, how could, what 11 different colors. And so I'm like training my eye to see different colors and hues. So I've been really inspired by that. I started reading, I just finished the book, Stay Inspired by Brandon Stussy uh, or Stossoy, Finding Motivation to, to Your Creative Work. And it's a book of just like a bunch of activities to get you motivated and inspired to do creative work. And so much of the book has you tap into like childhood experiences. So I've been, I haven't been like writing all the activities, but I've been at least thinking and meditating on them. Mm-hmm. And so that's been really fun. So thinking about my childhood as inspiration for things that I create and do now has been really cool. And then, yeah, just thinking about color. I've, yeah, lots of color, lots of just trying to find inspiration and creativity. My end of year project right now is trying to create an art book. <laughs> and so very similar to like the fade on kind of like big coffee table books. Yeah. I want to curate some type of, yeah, I've never tried. So I'm going to just try and like map that out over the, the holiday and see what I can come up with, have a little theme. I love material culture. So I think that's going to be the theme for the art book is thinking about material culture and how artists use different materials to create meaning. So I've been doing lots of research. So that's been my, end of year inspiration. At this stage of your career, like if you look 
even just looking back to where you've come from and, and where you've worked and, and the, the impact that you've had, how do you measure success now? Like, what does it look like for you? So do I feel happy? Do I feel good? Do I feel motivated has been like whether or not I feel successful or that those are my metrics for success. Like are things feeling right? Feels a little woo woo. I think it's because I live in LA now, but like <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't think I'd ever talk like this before, but yeah, a lot of it is like, how do things feel? I think I've had a lot of moments in life. Like I, I have ADHD. I also like have quite a bit of anxiety. And so a lot of my life has been me trying to get around those things. And so my metrics of success now have been, do I not feel anxious? How often have I been feeling anxious? Is it less? That seems great. That feels successful. So yeah, just kind of just like monitoring my mental health and feeling feeling good about where I am in life right now and being content, spending a lot of time just being happy with what I have right now. Yeah. It's hard because I think, how do you balance that with like wanting more and being ambitious? I'm wrestling with that now, but I'd just be happy with what I got. Is there anything that you want to do that you haven't done yet? Yeah, I really, really want to curate a show, like an art art show. I say it every year. So now that I'm saying it out loud to you and shared with the public, I think I have to do it. <laughs> so maybe it's on the 2024 docket. Yeah, I really want to curate a show. I've always like said I, I'd plan for it. I'd figure it out. But maybe 2024 is the year that I start actually doing it. You're right there in LA. That's a, a great place to do it. I know there's a um I know that United Talent Artist has a artist space, but I mean there's just so much art and design in Los Angeles. I feel like you could definitely make that happen. Oh thanks for saying that. I live close to the UTA artist space and I've contacted them before just for other stuff. So yeah. Thank you. You know what? <laughs> yeah. It's gonna go into the like when I'm vision boarding for twenty twenty four, this is it. Thanks for this. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of work do you see yourself doing in the next five years? I mean, I feel like you're someone that because of the skills and experience you've had, you could really almost go anywhere. I mean, because what you do is you help build systems and you help build processes to work through things. So say it's five years from now, what kind of work would you like to be doing? The thing that I have not dove into that I would like to do more is or just curation in general. So I think I I want to move to a space where I I think I've spent a lot of this part of my career being like, I want to be the artist. I want to create. I want to like work with people and uplift them. I think I can do that in a different way, whether I'm curating music shows, which I've started to do with Rosedale, curating a, an art show, curate just like doing more curation and leaning into... I don't have to be the person that's doing the thing. I can support the people doing the thing. Yeah. And so I think that's where I want to go. And I, I want to do it across. I imagine it being across a bunch of different sectors. And maybe it's not just visual art. Maybe it's also fashion and maybe it's also interior design and objects and vintage and stuff like that. So I see it. Yeah. I, I want to dive more into my creative self of like putting things like, I feel like a lot of the work that I do ends up being behind the scenes or like I don't get to share it very often mm -hmm. um, or it doesn't feel like I share it very often on a public platform. So I would like to move into that space a little bit more. 
Well, just to wrap things up here, Sam, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work, your projects? Like, where can they find that information online? So I occasionally post on my personal Instagram, which is Sam Viotti, S-A-M-V-I-O-T-T-Y. But my art stuff is at the Viotti Studio on Instagram. So both of those are on Instagram. I occasionally tweet, I'm Sam Viotti on most things if you I think I'm also the only Sam Viotti. So if you Google Samantha Viotti or Sam Viotti, I'm pretty sure you'll find me anywhere. That's mostly, I, I respond to DMs. People can also email me at hi at sviotti.com. So happy to chat. I love just talking to other people about what they're working on. All right. Sounds good. Sam Viotti, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I mean, when I was doing my research and and I think, you know, what really kind of blew me away was like, this is a program designer that's like trying to change country music. Like it felt like this weird sort of combination. But now that I've, I've talked with you and I've gotten the sense to, you know, kind of see like how you work and how you think. I mean, you're the kind of person that I feel like the design industry needs to have more of, like someone that can really synthesize all of the things that design can do and use them in ways that can help forward, you know, move people forward move systems forward, move companies forward. I mean, there's been so much talk about generalist versus specialist, right? And I think what you embody is like the true kind of generalist type of designer that I wish more designers were. Like I wish more people were able to take their knowledge and think of it and use it and apply it in ways that can really sort of benefit the world. I mean, we live in a very crazy time right now and a lot of the systems and and practices and things we have are designed and can be and should be redesigned. And it's just so empowering for me to see someone like you that's doing this work out in the world. And I'm I'm glad to share that with the audience here. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. I can't believe that you have this platform. It's incredible. Everyone, I've listened to a few episodes and people are really, really inspiring. So I'm honored. I'm honored to be on this on the show. So thank you so much. Big, big thanks to Sam Viotti, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Sam and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts, BFA Design, and BFA Advertising Programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. The BFA Design Program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design. And the BFA Advertising Program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sva.edu and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. 
Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please let us know. We're on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you could follow us on Spotify. We're on Amazon Music. You could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We're also now on YouTube. So the full archive of Revision Path episodes are now on YouTube and new episodes will be published there every Monday as well. So you can also follow us there. Also, if you really want to leave us some love, especially this time around the holidays, you can leave us a voice message on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.